you are listening to the Ever Argue with a Woman podcast, and I am Heather Tesmer. Hello, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode where we dove into marital agreements. Today, we are going to jump right back in, but first, let's do our good personal and good business. So my good personal is that I made it through a week and a half of conferences and made it home and it feels really good to be here. And good business is probably the same thing. I went to an EOS conference and an EO conference uh, back to back and learned a lot about how to improve the business side of the law firm. And so it was really a good thing for, for me to go and I was able to take our office manager as well. All right, let's get started. A lot of attorneys refuse to draft premarital and postnuptial agreements. And there's probably good reason to refuse to handle those types of cases. One is if the premarital or postnuptial agreement gets thrown out, well, whose fault is that? And it, Usually, we're going to look to the drafting attorney. You need to be very cautious as an attorney. If you are drafting these, make sure and review the family code. Make sure you're up to date on all the case law and make sure that you are getting your client prepared for everything that they're going to need to do to make sure this agreement is valid. And you also need to use caution that the other side also does everything they need to do. So if you're representing the moneyed spouse, you need to offer to pay for the attorney to go over the agreement with the other side. There's a lot you can do to help make sure that these agreements are held up and enforceable. Another thing that as an attorney I like to do, which might be overkill, is when we draft a premarital agreement, once the parties become married, I also do a post-nuptial confirmation agreement. And so now you've just got it all reiterated that whatever was agreed to prior to marriage is now also agreed to after the marriage. And that can resolve some of the enforcement issues when it comes to duress or uh, the whole, you know, you hear about premarital agreements that are signed in close proximity to the wedding with the threat that they will not marry without that being signed. That's, that's duress. And that can have that premarital agreement be not valid. So another type of postnuptial agreement is a conversion agreement. And this is where separate property can be changed to community property. Before November 2nd of 1999, the Texas Constitution permitted spouses to convert community property into separate property, but not vice versa. But on that date, the Constitution was amended to allow spouses to convert their separate property into community property. The Constitutional Amendment and the Conforming Amendments to the Family Code took effect on January the 1st of 2000. So that's a big deal. And there's not a whole lot of people who are willing to do something like that. The purpose of a conversion agreement is to convert 
the separate property into community property. Although there are several disadvantages to converting separate property into community property, there are a number of reasons why a spouse may choose to make such a conversion. One reason might be for estate planning purposes. Community property has a number of tax planning benefits over separate property. First, when a spouse dies owning community property, each spouse's one-half share in that community property receives a step-up basis. Therefore, by converting separate property to community property, a spouse can save the surviving spouse from having to pay capital gains taxes on any converted property that is sold after the spouse's death. Second, converting separate property to community property may be useful for distributing wealth to an asset-poor spouse so both spouses can benefit from a larger federal estate tax exemption. Under the federal tax code, each spouse is permitted to exempt a certain amount of money from federal estate tax upon death. If one spouse owns most of the wealth, it may be beneficial for the spouse to convert some of her separate property into community property in order to get full use of each spouse's federal estate tax exemption. So that estate tax exemption in 2021 was 11.7 million per spouse. And in 2022, it's 12.06 million per spouse. So if you're in that kind of a asset bracket, I want to be your friend and I would love for you to be a client. So you have to be very cautious when you're converting separate property into community property for estate planning purposes. Although the purpose of the conversion could be well-intentioned, nothing prohibits a spouse from filing for divorce soon after the other spouse converts the separate property into community. And now that it's community, we get to divide it on the dissolution of your marriage. If you're going to do one of these conversion agreements, you both need to be independently represented. It needs to be in writing. You got to identify your property. And specifically with a conversion agreement, you have to disclose the legal effect of what the conversion is going to do. The conversion agreement should contain a fair and reasonable disclosure of the legal effects of converting separate property into community property. The Family Code provides model language for informing the spouses of the consequences. An agreement containing this language needs to be bold-faced and underlined and in all capital letters and is rebuttably presumed to provide a fair and reasonable disclosure of the legal effects if you put it in there that way. And again, you don't have to have consideration. It does need to be signed and it needs to be notarized. So a conversion agreement can convert separate property into community property. Spouses can convert their present or future interests in real or personal separate property, including income and earnings. So the property interest converted can be legal or equitable, invested or contingent. Also, you can specify the management rights. So any of the property, you can figure out whether it's going to be managed solely by one spouse or if both of you need to make decisions regarding the property. You can also put in there uh, the rights and duties of your marriage and whether or not you have to go to mediation before filing anything. And again, it's the same contractual provisions that are prohibited, can't violate public policy, can't affect the child support, and you can't defraud creditors. Before we talk about enforcing these agreements, I want to talk about real quick some other agreements that you might encounter as part of family law issues. If you move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you have to be really careful about making sure that you don't 
don't create a informal marriage or common law marriage. It's really easy to do. All you have to do is live together as man and wife, and we all know what that means. You have to hold yourself out as married. So let's say mm, you go to the coast for the weekend and sign into a hotel room as Mr. and Mrs. Well, you just held yourself out as married and you have to agree to be married. And that can be not a verbal agreement, not a written agreement. It can be something that is inferred. So if you go down there and check in as Mr. and Mrs. and the one who doesn't say it doesn't object to that, well, you just agreed by not objecting. If you want to make sure that you do not have an informal marriage, you might think about executing a cohabitation agreement. Parties can enter into agreements made in consideration of non-marital cohabitation between consenting adults. Cohabitation agreements are generally entered into by people who do not want to get married or who cannot get married legally, but who wish to live together. A cohabitation agreement enables these people to define their rights and obligations towards each other, similar to a premarital agreement, but with no expectation of getting married. Although you can look at extrinsic evidence to establish an exchange of consideration, the agreement should set out the party's consideration in writing. So in this cohabitation agreement, you can set out what your rights and duties are going to be. I mean, you can even say who's going to be in charge of cooking or grocery shopping or paying the electric bill, who's going to get to park on which side of the garage. You can set out any agreement that you want to, but again, as a contract, I would suggest that we put it in writing, we get it notarized. It's actually going to be a contract that can be enforced. Another type of agreement might be what we call an agreement in consideration of marriage. Parties can enter into agreements made in consideration of marriage. These agreements, although premarital in nature, are very different from the premarital agreements contemplated under the family code. One significant difference is that premarital agreements under Family Code Section 1.108 take effect immediately and can be enforced even if the marriage never takes place. So this is a contract that is in contemplation of marriage. A premarital only takes effect once you're married. To be enforceable, the agreement must be in writing, signed by the person obligated by the agreement, and made in consideration of marriage. Because engagement rings are traditionally given in consideration of marriage, a promise to return an engagement ring if the marriage does not take place is enforceable if the agreement meets that requirement. So the engagement ring thing is something that's often debated and talked about. A lot of people think if you don't get married, you got to return the engagement ring because the purpose of that ring is to seal the deal that you will get married. But if the marriage never happens, do you have to return it? The answer is not necessarily. So an oral promise to return an engagement ring is not an enforceable agreement under the family code, but may be enforceable under the conditional gift rule. Under the conditional gift rule, an engagement ring must be returned to the donor, the person who gave it to you, if the donee is at fault in terminating the engagement. If, however, the donor is the one that's at fault in terminating the engagement, then you don't have to give the ring back. And that's a big misconception in Texas because a lot of people think they got to give it back, but that's not necessarily true.
Another kind of an agreement is a separation agreement. So in Texas, we don't have legal separation, but you can come up with a an agreement uh, to effectuate really the kind of the same thing. Under common law, spouses can enter into separation agreements to specify their rights and duties while living apart but not divorced. Separation agreements are important because a legal separation, of course, is not recognized in Texas. And because we don't recognize legal separation as a marital status, spouses who live apart but who are still married can continue to be subject to the laws that apply to married people, such as the accumulation of community property. To alter these rights and duties while living apart, spouses can enter into a separation agreement. To be enforceable, it needs to be in writing, signed by both spouses, entered into without coercion or undue influence, and it needs to be fair and equitable. If the separation agreement partitions, exchanges, or converts marital property, it should conform to the statutory requirements under the family code that govern those agreements. I think a separation agreement is actually rare. What I usually suggest people do is to file for divorce and get under temporary orders. And these temporary orders are actually similar to what a separation agreement would be, except it's now ordered by a judge and it's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit more easily enforced. If you decide you're not going to get divorced, you can always non-suit the case and the temporary orders go away. We've actually had several people that we put on temporary orders and then they come back and say that they've decided that they want to stay married. There are ways to get around that whole we don't have any rules governing separation. So the last agreement I want to talk about is called a right of survivorship agreement. And at any time during the marriage, spouses can agree that all or part of their community property, then existing or acquired, becomes the property of the surviving spouse on the death of the other spouse. A right of survivorship agreement converts a decedent spouse's community property into the surviving spouse's separate property. That's what happens a lot with your bank accounts. A lot of banks prefer that parties have a designated survivor on the account so that you don't have to go to probate to have the funds in the account transfer to the other spouse. Or it doesn't even have to be a spouse. It could be to the, your children. It, it could be to anybody, actually. So let's talk about contesting premarital and postmarital agreements. For a premarital agreement, you have a what we call an SOL or a statute of limitations. So the limitations period is four years and that limitations period is told during the party's marriage. So with a contract, to enforce a contract or to contest a contract, the statute of limitations is four years. But you're really not going to know if the contract is valid or not until you're actually going through a divorce. If something happens or you're ready to get divorced, you have four years to bring that action. The contestant has to prove the agreement is not enforceable. So here's the procedure. If you have a premarital agreement and one of the spouses wants to get divorced, then you file a petition for divorce and an exhibit will be the premarital agreement. And so you add that into your petition and you file that with the court. If I'm the one who wants to enforce that premarital agreement, then I'm the one who would put that on there when I'm divorcing. Let's say my husband is the one who's got all the money. He wants to get divorced. 
He files the petition and he's got the premarital agreement as an exhibit. And I want to challenge that premarital agreement because I signed it under duress or I was coerced or he didn't tell me everything that he had before he made me sign it. Those are all valid points that can be contested to have that premarital agreement proven to be invalid. So as the contestant, it's my duty to show or my burden to show why that premarital agreement is not enforceable. In Texas, before September 1st of 1993, all we had were common law contract offenses, which were fraud, duress, overreaching, mistake, lack of consideration, and ambiguity. And you can also argue involuntary or unconscionable. But after that, uh, the legislature amended the family code eliminating the common law defenses, involuntary execution and unconscionable, they're the only defenses that are left. With involuntary execution, you can show that the premarital agreement is not enforceable by proving that you did not execute the agreement voluntarily. Neither the Family Code nor the UPAA defines voluntary, but courts have defined it as an intentional act as opposed to inadvertent or accidental. That is the product of the exercise of free will, unconstrained by external interference, force, or influence. So the question of whether a premarital agreement was executed involuntarily is a factual case-by-case determination. The party contesting the agreement does not have to show and express direct threat or coercion to establish involuntariness. Recitations in the agreement that state the parties understand the agreement and are signing it voluntarily are not independently determinative of involuntariness. In a a particular case called Moore v. Moore, the Dallas Court of Appeals identified the following four non-exclusive factors that can be considered when evaluating evidence of involuntariness. One is whether or not you had the advice of counsel. As a drafting attorney, I always insist you at least go spend an hour with an attorney and talk to them about the agreement if you're on the other side. Number two is misrepresentation. That's the whole thing of did you spell out everything that you've got and everything that you owe. Number three is amount of information. You got to share it all. And number four is did you omit information? Did you withhold information? So evidence of fraud, duress, and undue influence, the Texas courts have struggled to determine whether evidence of these can be presented to establish involuntary execution of these agreements. This struggle stems from the Family Code Amendment that made involuntary execution and unconscionability the exclusive defenses to a premarital agreement executed on or after 9-1 of 1993. So let's talk about some examples of evidence indicating fraud, duress, and undue influence. And as a factor relevant to voluntary execution after the date, I think I mentioned this before, the proximity of the execution to wedding day or the honeymoon. So if you hand your spouse a premarital agreement as she's about to walk down the aisle in a wedding where there's 300 guests sitting there, that's going to be a problem. We also would look at the maturity of the individuals, also the capacity of the individuals. And I think some of this might be um, where we're having some of those, uh, what do they call them, sunrise-sunset relationships, where you have somebody who is maybe more savvy in business, has more assets, and they're marrying someone who might be 
a little bit younger and not as savvy in the business, these things are considered when contesting premarital agreements. We're going to look at business backgrounds, education levels, experience maybe in earlier marriages, age, motivation to protect the children. Again, the independent legal representation is big. We need um, the fiduciary duties of each spouse and then bargaining ability. A premarital agreement is also not enforceable if the contestant proves that the agreement was unconscionable when it was signed and that before signing the agreement, the contestant, one, was not provided a fair and reasonable disclosure of the property or financial obligations of the other party and two, did not voluntarily or expressly waive in writing any right to the disclosure of the other party's property or financial obligations. Again, we don't really have a definition of unconscionable, but in the commercial context, an agreement is unconscionable if, given the party's general backgrounds and their particular needs, the contract is so one-sided that it's unconscionable under the circumstances existing when the parties made the contract. I've warned about this throughout. It's the inadequate disclosure. If the contestant has proved that the agreement was unconscionable when it was signed, the contestant must still prove that there was no fair and reasonable disclosure and there was no waiver of that disclosure and that you did not have knowledge of that information. Contesting postmarital agreements uh, and conversion agreements, it's very similar except that the four years, unlike the statute governing premarital agreements, the statutes governing partition exchange agreements do not expressly toll the enforcement of an agreement during the party's marriage. Same thing with the conversion agreements. The burdens are still pretty much the same. You, if you want to contest the premarital agreement, then you're the one that has the burden to challenge it and you get to show the same elements. In a conversion agreement, the contestant can challenge enforcement of the conversion agreement based on either of the following grounds, that you didn't execute it voluntarily or the contestant did not receive fair and reasonable disclosure. Unlike the enforcement provisions in premarital and partition agreements, a conversion agreement allows for common law contractual defenses. And that's all I have to say about that. Wow. I know this was a lot of knowledge to soak up, but luckily you have this episode readily available whenever you need it. Be sure to tune in next month for episode six. I'm also hoping to begin a mini series where I can focus on my war stories and interesting cases that have come across my desk over the years. And don't forget, if you thought of any questions during this two-part marital agreement session, submit them on the podcast page of my website at tesmerlawfirm.com. Have a great May, and I will see you guys in June. Thanks so much for listening. You are listening to The Ever Argue with a Woman podcast, and I am Heather Tesmer. Ever argue with a woman?